Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Shirley Tureen, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Franklin and Marshall College, who was awarded an AAR Individual Research Grant. He's here to speak to us about this project entitled Islam, Tradition, and Democracy, the Case of the Dioban Madrasa. Congratulations, Shirley, and thanks for joining me. How are you? Very good, uh, Christian. Thank you so much for your time. Let me also uh, thank the American Academy of Religion for all the work that they do for uh, students and scholars in the field and uh, for this grant opportunity, which was a great source of you know, financial nourishment for scholarship and a good ego boost. This is a really excellent project that you're working on. Can you give us a little bit of the social historical context? What should we know about early 20th century South Asia and specifically the role of the Dioban Madrasa to understand your project? Yeah, thank you, Christian. Uh, well, primarily my work revolves around Muslim intellectual traditions in South Asia from the middle of the 18th to the middle of the 20th century, uh, broadly speaking. And uh, I did my dissertation work uh, on intra-Muslim debates and polemics on questions of law, theology, and everyday practice, uh, primarily focusing on an important and long-running polemic which still continues in South Asia and globally, in fact, among scholars of two major uh, Muslim reformist uh, outfits in South Asia called the Barelvis and the Diobandis. Uh, this particular project is part of my second uh, book project, uh, where I'm primarily interested in the question of how new political conditions uh, generate uh, and inform new ways of imagining the tradition and new ways of engaging with the canonical sources of the tradition, primarily uh, the Quran. Uh, this particular project engages with an important Indian Muslim scholar uh, who lived uh, in the late uh, 19th, early 20th century by the name of Ubaidullah Sindhi, about whom we will uh, discuss uh, more in a moment, who died in 1944. And uh, he uh, is uh, a very curious scholar about whom not much has been written, though some scholarship has been conducted on him. Ubaidullah Sindhi was a Sikh convert to Islam uh, from uh, the city of Sialkot, which is today in Pakistan at that time in British India, who converted into Islam at the age of 15 in 1887. He was born in 1872 and he converted into Islam and became Muslim when a Hindu classmate at his school, in fact, gifted him a book uh, by the name of Tohfatul Hind, The Gift of India, which had been written by a Hindu convert to Islam who had later on become a major Muslim scholar by the name of Ubaidullah. Uh, so, so taken was this young Sikh boy, uh, whose name actually was Buta Singh, that on his conversion, he also took up the name Ubaidullah. Uh, and then he enrolled uh, at the age of 16 at the prestigious seminary in North India called the Deoban Madrasa, which was established in 1867. Uh, this is in the aftermath of the Indian mutiny of 1857. Uh, and this really, the context is one in which Muslim political elite uh, has lost political sovereignty after many centuries of Muslim rule in the Indian subcontinent and the loss of political sovereignty uh, paradoxically leads to an ever greater intensification of intellectual fermentation in Muslim South Asia and there are different uh, ways in which the Muslim scholarly elite, the ulama, uh, begin to think about the project of reform, begin to think about the question of how must we reform Islam in South Asia in this new context of uh, colonialism? Uh, 
Uh, and the, the, the Deoband project, the Deoband franchise, so to say, is one major such reformist outfit, uh, is one major what in South Asia we would call a, uh, a normative franchise or a maslak, uh, plural masalik, uh, which in the context of South Asia really refers to competing reformist schools, competing projects of reform. And Ubaidullah Sindhi was part of, of the Deoband Madrasa. And so that, in some ways, is one of the major uh, ingredients of the political context, the loss of political sovereignty, new ways of imagining the tradition, new projects and recipes of reform, new imaginaries of what a Muslim subject should look like in the new conditions of colonialism. Now, before we zoom in here, one of the fulcrums of intellectual interest during this period revolved around Western notions of modernity. So how did Muslim scholars articulate their religious authority within the framework of normative Islam, as you're, you're saying here? How do we rethink the tradition? How do these thinkers conceive of notions of modernity? And where did they see tradition within this? Well, there were uh, obviously competing notions of how to think about the question of modernity, how to think about the question of reform. Uh, within the tradition. Let me focus, uh, with your permission, Christian, on uh, uh, this particular scholar uh, on whom this project uh, has focused on. When I had applied for the AR grant, I was thinking of doing a comparative study of Ubaidullah Sindhi's thought with that of another major uh, Deobandi scholar, Ashraf Ali Thanvi, on the question of Islam and democracy and the participation of Muslims in uh, electoral politics. Uh, but the way that this project has taken shape I have focused much more in this particular iteration on the thought of Ubaidullah Sindhi. Uh, so, Ubaidullah Sindhi, uh, to continue with his biographical narrative, and I will uh, uh, come to the question of modernity through his story, through his narrative, to give you one snapshot, to give you one example of a Muslim scholar's engagement in wrestling with the conditions of modernity. Ubaidullah Sindhi, when he enrolled at the Deoband Madrasa, he excelled as a student and he uh, uh, took on as his teacher a famous scholar in the Deoband Madrasa by the name of Mahmoud Hassan. And uh, in 1915, at the height of World War One, Mahmoud Hassan dispatched Ubaidullah Sindhi to Kabul in Afghanistan. And he was dispatched to Afghanistan with the task of establishing a branch of the Indian National Congress, which was one of the major political parties uh, in South Asia, being led, of course, uh, by uh, Gandhi. And Sindhi became part of a very interesting and curious transnational conspiracy movement to overthrow the British. Uh, this movement was known as the Silk Handkerchief Movement, uh, in Urdu, Reshmi uh, Rumal Tahrik. The reason why it was called that was because the different participants of this movement, some of whom were in Kabul, some in Delhi, some in Mecca at this time, many of them were uh, you know, had escaped India and, and, and uh, the British were after them and so on. So they would communicate with each other through multicolored pieces of silk cloth. Hence it was called the Silk Handkerchief Movement. So Sindhi stayed in Kabul for seven years where he tried to make an alliance with the Afghan government there and he was quite close to the Emperor of Afghanistan at that time, Amanullah Khan. Uh, and eventually Sindhi had to leave Afghanistan because the British pressure on Amanullah Khan to hand Sindhi over to them became too uh, difficult to withstand. Uh, nonetheless, his conspiracy movement did take some hold in Afghanistan. And from Afghanistan in 1922, Sindhi moved to Moscow uh, in Soviet Russia. 
And there he was given uh, official uh, welcome and official protocol as a known dissident of the British Empire. Uh, there are some rumors that he had met Stalin, but later in his life he, he denied any such rumor. And in, in, in Soviet Russia, Sindhi encountered an idea, a, a political current that in some ways really was the game changer, that really shifted his, uh, the, the orientation of his religious and political thought. And that idea, that current was that of socialism and the promise of a proletariat revolution based on the ideals of economic uh, justice and emancipation. Although he was very suspicious of the irreligious character of this revolution, he was really mesmerized by the idea of a proletariat revolution. Uh, he spent four months in uh, Moscow and from there on he went to Istanbul in Turkey for four years. Uh, uh, on the eve of the abolition uh, of the Ottoman Caliphate. And in Turkey, Sindhi really began to internalize a narrative of cultural secularism. Uh, he did not, he was very inspired and really taken by the, by the discourses on uh, secularism in Turkey at this time. And not so much the political uh, uh, idea of secularism as the separation of church and state, but rather he was really taken by the cultural aspects of secularism, such as the banning of headscarves and the adoption of Western habits uh, and uh, uh, mannerisms and so on. Uh, years later, for example, when he would come back to India, he would oppose the donning of headscarves and that led him into tremendous trouble among his traditionalist uh, peers in India. And from there on, in 1926, he moves to Mecca, where he lived uh, for 12 years. And it was really in Mecca that he tried to uh, generate an intellectual program uh, in which he tried to combine the socio-economic ideals of socialism and proletariat emancipation with what he regarded as the revolutionary message of the Quran. And for Sindhi, the Quran primarily was a revolutionary text uh, that uh, 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 presented a program for socio-economic emancipation, for the emancipation of the underprivileged, uh, those who had been uh, treated unjustly uh, in 7th century Arabia and prior to that. Uh, so this was the kind of intellectual bricolage that he tried to craft uh, during his stay in Mecca and as part of that program of trying to combine an economic uh, agenda of uh, proletariat emancipation with the Quran's uh, uh, focus on the question of a uh, uh, just revolution, for that he uh, wrote uh, numerous things uh, primarily commentaries on the thought of another famous 18th century South Asian Muslim scholar uh, by the name of Shah Waliullah, who died in 1762. And Shah Waliullah, although a very, very, uh, uh, you know, a, a scholar who, who wore many hats and wrote about multiple subjects, but one aspect of his intellectual and political thought was that Shah Waliullah, who was living in Mughal India, the Mughals, of course, were, uh, you know, the, the dynasty that preceded British colonial rule in India, Shavaliullah was highly critical of certain aspects of Mughal rule uh, and he was very critical of the aristocratic habits and mannerisms of, of Mughal rulers uh, and, and, and monarchical forms of sovereignty. So Ubaidullah Sindhi took that aspect of Shavaliullah's thought and he, he, he wrote commentaries on his political thought, on his philosophical thought and he also wrote a commentary on the Quran and this was a topical commentary on the Quran which he entitled uh, the Quran's conscience of revolution. And my research, this phase of my research, uh, for which I 
you know, uh, uh, mobilized the AAR grant, uh, really focused on this Quran commentary of Ubaidullah Sindhi. And to, to really think about the question of how these new political anticipations, how these new political desires, such as in this case, the desire for a socio-economic revolution, how do they inform new ways of engaging with the canonical sources of the tradition, in this case, uh, the Quran. So here we find a particular scholar who is very much entangled with the conditions of modernity, very much entangled with new currents uh, that, he, that, he, that he finds himself uh, engaged in, but he tries to articulate a program of reform, a program of socioeconomic revolution that does not jettison the religious tradition, but that rather folds the canonical sources of the tradition to a modern program of socioeconomic revolution. So this is one example. There are multiple examples of how Muslim scholars in South Asia engage the question of modernity. But this is one example uh, which in some ways is quite useful in thinking about uh, the relationship between the political and institutional conditions of modernity and how that informs new ways of engaging with the tradition. Can you give us an image of what this text looks like? What are perhaps some examples of how he translated Quranic passages into revolutionary messages that would speak to a modern Muslim subject? Thank you for that question, Christian. So Ubaidullah Sindhi's Quran commentary was around a 600-page text, in, uh, primarily in Urdu, interspersed uh, with some Arabic. And structurally, this text was divided into seven different sections, uh, each corresponding to particular aspects of revolution. And he categorized particular chapters of the Quran, primarily Meccan chapters, but also some Madiran chapters, uh, under different uh, headings and titles, such as the Quranic foundation of revolution, the Quranic principles of revolution, uh, the Quranic revolutionary party, uh, and uh, the Quranic uh, constitution of revolution, and so on. Ubaidullah Sindhi's main argument was that the Quran, in essence, is a revolutionary text uh, that called for a global revolution uh, based on annihilating the unjust and elevating uh, the dispossessed. Uh, so revelation and revolution for him uh, were inseparable. So he argued that the very first chapter of the Quran, the Al-Fatiha, was what he called a global prayer for revolution, whereby humanity supplicated God for the creation of a virtue society on the straight path that confronted the forces of injustice, exploitation, and, and, and so forth. In Sindhi's view, class struggle was at the heart of the Quran uh, and of Muhammad's uh, prophetic career. Uh, he argued that the revolutionary intervention of the Quran lay in a strong critique of and the an eventual annihilation of the two major world empires that flourished in the 7th century, the Roman and uh, the Persian empires. But he argued that uh, these were not just political entities, the Romans and the Persians, but rather these were mindsets of imperial elitism, what he called Romanness and Persianness, Qaisariyat wa Qasrawiyat. And he argued that these mindsets of imperial elitism uh, flourished through economic exploitation, through the monopolization of wealth, uh, through uh, mistreatment of the underprivileged and the dispossessed, and so on. So the Quran was primarily a revolutionary text which uh, brought about a socio-economic revolution in confronting these regimes and these empires of injustice. So one of the main things that I'm interested in 
Is the way in which Sindhi interpreted particular verses and passages in the Quran through entirely new conceptual vocabularies? So to give you an example, um, I in this paper I focused on uh, Sindhi's commentary on two uh, chapters in the Quran, chapters 73 and 74, uh, entitled "The Enwrapped One" uh, and "The One Enveloped," Al Muzammil and Al Mudathir. Uh, which are early Meccan uh, chapters uh, that primarily engage with questions of devotion and piety, uh, with questions of eschatology and the afterworld uh, that describe the qualities of unbelievers and people who are uh, not thankful of God's sovereignties and rewards and that talk about the kinds of punishments that these kinds of people will meet in the afterlife and so on. So fairly standard Meccan chapters that talk about these different themes. So for example, when it comes to the chapter Al-Muzammil, uh, which could be translated as the enwrapped one or the enfolded one, uh, which evokes the picture of Prophet Muhammad uh, wearing his cloak uh, during his prayers, uh, uh, and that's the kind of picture of intense piety that this uh, chapter evokes, and the idea is that uh, uh, Muslims and uh, uh, Prophet Muhammad's followers are supposed to emulate and follow that model of intense piety. In Ubaidullah Sindhi's hands, this uh, term al-Muzammil, he gave a, he gave an alternative translation of this term, and he said that this term can also mean gathering people together, uh, from the word tazmil. Uh, and what he uh, his 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 phraseology was that this uh, chapter is really a command on the Muslim community to gather together comrades for the establishment of what he called the Quranic Revolutionary Party. Now, notice uh, the, the modern vocabulary of, uh, of politics, uh, this idea of a Quranic revolutionary party. Uh, he went on, for example, uh, the second and third verses of this chapter read, uh, uh, and I quote here, uh, Keep awake in prayer at night, but not all night, half of it or a little less. And then it goes on to say in verse 6, And verily, during the hours of night, the mind is freshest and the speech clearest. Now, most Quran commentators have read these verses as injunctions that authorize the extra nightly prayers or tahajjud uh, in Islam. But in Sindhi's hands, the devotional content of these verses, and that's the key point, the devotional content of these verses were intimately bound to a call for political action. So, for, for example, he argued that these verses actually are talking about, uh, are giving a practical manual for aspiring Quranic revolutionary comrades to stay awake at night uh, uh, while devoting themselves to the manifesto for revolution, which is the Quran. And then the hours of the day were supposed to go out in, into the public, into the open, and to invite people to this revolutionary project, whereas the hours of the night, when the mind is freshest, uh, were supposed to be devoted to learning the principles, uh, the, the precepts of revolution. For example, uh, to give you one other example, in the chapter 74, Al-Muddathir, uh, there is a verse, a curious verse, which reads, uh, verse number 6, uh, which reads, and I quote, And do not through giving seek yourself to gain. Now, according to Sindhi, this verse represented a stern warning against what he called the idea of surplus value. Again, using the category of surplus value uh, from Marxist thought. And he said that this verse really shows uh, the, the, the problematic nature and the sinful nature of surplus value that is charging a laborer uh, less than what... Uh, he or she deserves, or making a labor work more and, and paying less, and, and so on. Uh, for example, to give you one other final example, there is a very interesting section in uh, uh, Surat al-Muddathir, uh, 
uh, and I'm speaking from memory here, but it goes uh, approximately from verses 12 to 29, uh, where God is describing the different qualities of unbelievers uh, and uh, people who are thankless, people who don't thank uh, God for his sovereignty and for all his rewards and blessings that he has bestowed on humanity. And in Cindy's hands, these verses that we're talking about the qualities of an unbeliever or someone who is not thankful of God's sovereignty, in fact, represented a description of the life narrative and what he called the psychological condition of a rich industrialist, capitalist, uh, uh, bourgeois elite. Uh, the life narrative from being a rich, uh, spoiled brat to how he grows up into becoming an exploitative capitalist and, and, and so forth. Uh, so, for example, you know, there is a, there is a verse uh, in this chapter uh, where uh, God says, and we have given him children who are always by his side. And in Ubedullah Sindhi's hands, uh, he writes that the reason why this capitalist elite, and he's now making a comparison between the unbelievers and, and the, uh, you know, the, the thankless people who are being described in the Quran, uh, uh, from the 7th century context with the modern-day industrialist uh, bourgeois elite. And he says that the reason why there are children always by his side because he exploits his laborers uh, in the industries, on lands and so on. And through this exploitation, by making these laborers uh, you know, sweat uh, and, and expend their sweat and blood, he is able to uh, amass an empire uh, which allows him to then spend uh, time with his children and that allows him, for, for example, uh, to spend time lounging, and this is a, a quote from Ubedullah Sindhi's text, lounging in club rooms, the English word used by Sindhi, with his friends and killing endless hours in idle talk and chatter. And then this chapter moves on to talking about the fate of such uh, unbelievers and thankless people on uh, the Day of Judgment uh, and, and the afterworld. And Ubedullah Sindhi argues that this is exactly the kind of fate which will be met by these exploitators uh, uh, who exploit labor in this world. Eventually, they will meet a very hellish, uh, pun intended, uh, eschatological fate. So the interesting thing there is that a couple of things. One is what it shows is that although Sindhi was very animated and inspired by uh, you know, uh, uh, questions of uh, uh, discourses of socialism and so on, but for him, his project was deeply theological it was deeply eschatological that these exploitators that he was talking about will meet a very hellish uh, fate in the afterlife. And it's very interesting, he talks about one of the verses in this chapter where it talks about a steep uphill climb which will have to be climbed by these people and Ubedullah Sindhi says that this is the idea of progress which will be reversed. Whereas in this world, this uh, you know uh, uh, capitalist elite will think that he or she has really progressed but in the afterlife then by making uh, by climbing this uphill uh, mountain, uh, you will realize that this actually is not progress, but actually is a form of intense punishment. So it's deeply theological. And secondly, what I'm really interested in and what I really try to explore is how uh, these verses and these uh, 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 devotional, seemingly devotional verses are read and interpreted in explicitly political terms. And that was one of the main arguments of Vedalas Sindhi, that these seemingly devotional verses are in fact deeply political. That what is required of the reader of the Quran is to excavate and to unearth the socio-economic revolutionary message of the Quran uh, rather than just 
looking at these as uh, you know moments from the prophet's life which only have a devotional import he said one of the reasons why quran commentators have not been able to uh, identify and appreciate these socioeconomic undercurrents these revolutionary undercurrents of the quran is that perhaps they were writing at a time which was a bit distant from the prophetic moment and what he saw his quran commentary is a work of re-energizing the revolutionary spirit of the quran the revolutionary import of the quran and so these are some examples some and there are multiple examples but just to give you some sense of uh, ways in which uh, he went about this uh, process of translation before we let you go, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how was this work received, both at home and abroad? Well, Ubaidullah Sindhi is someone whose legacy is very much still uh, contested. When he came back from his travels, uh, for example, uh, after 25 years, he came back to India in 1939 and he lived for five years and then eventually uh, died in 1944. Uh, you know, there are some scholars who really dismissed him as someone who had turned from an anti-colonial activist to a socialist revolutionary. And many people said that, you know, he lost his mind during his travels and that ideas that he was articulating were very dangerous and heretical and so on. On the other hand, there are other scholars, you know, a smaller group of scholars within the Dioban school, for example, and elsewhere among traditionalist Muslim scholars who have really appropriated his thought and have begun to see in his thought a, a uh, who, who have begun to see that perhaps he was way years ahead of his own time. So many of the questions which are today debated in terms of questions of politics and questions of a you know, Muslim uh, political uh, setup. He also wrote extensively on the idea of Muslim politics and he had proposed that India should stay within the Commonwealth of, of, uh, of uh, the UK, which was an interesting complete shift from being an anti-colonial activist to coming back as someone who argued for Indian Muslims to stay within the Commonwealth. And his main argument on the question of politics was that India should be divided uh, in European style according to languages. So language is the main a marker of identity, so different provinces uh, in South Asia should be divided according to different languages. So you have a province for the Kashmiris, a province for the Sindhis, a province for the Balochis, and these are different languages and ethnicities in South Asia and so on. So today, for example, there are many scholars and, and, and Muslim modernists and traditionalists in Pakistan, for example, who have begun to rethink the legacy of Sindhi and see in him as a voice who was uh, years ahead of his time and who also see in his uh, writings on Shah Waliullah and his translation of Shah Waliullah and the question of revolution and so on, um, someone uh, who can provide an interesting and important model of thinking about the larger socioeconomic questions uh, in relation to Islam and the Quran and so on. So it's a very uh, contested legacy uh, uh, and there are different interpretations of that legacy uh, and a legacy which continues uh, to be debated, to be intensely debated. And, you know, part of what I'm trying to do here as part of my larger book project, uh, of which this is a, a small part, is to really think about his intellectual discourses, his life narrative, and to, to, to really think about the conceptual question that I'm primarily interested in is, you know, what do we do with such programs of politics when... The, the political horizons of the revolution, for example, that Sindhi was imagining was very immediate in his own time, was very urgent for him. What do we do with these political projects that no longer seem as urgent as they once may have? So what do we do with the temporality of revolutionary politics when the, the, the future that a thinker like Sindhi was imagining is our present, which is soon becoming the past? So the question of temporality, how does one think about these kinds of political projects in the past, which at some point had seemed urgent and immediate, but now are drifting and waning into a past, uh, which is, uh, you know, our, uh, our present, uh, uh, 
becoming the past every every moment. So in terms of this particular question, I'm, I'm really inspired by the work of the anthropologist uh, David Scott and, and his text, uh, Conscripts of Modernity, and more recently, Omens of Adversity. And, and of course, you know, the, the theorist uh, uh, Koselik, Reinhard Koselik, and his whole question of futures, past, and so on. So I'm really interested, broadly speaking, conceptually, to think about the temporality of revolution in Muslim thought in modernity and what a thinker like Ubedullah Sindhi could contribute to that discussion of uh, how we think the question about the question of time in relation to new political projects uh, that are crafted through new readings of uh, the Muslim canonical tradition uh, and Muslim texts such as the Quran. Thanks for sharing about this wonderful project and congratulations on the award again. Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Christian, uh, for all the work that you do for this conversation. And thank you again for the American Academy of Religion. And thank you to all your listeners uh, for their patience if they made it through this conversation. Thank you very much. <laughs>